You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, May 23rd, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. My uh, favorite storybook Bible is the Jesus Storybook Bible. I know many of you love it as well. Even if you don't have kids, you should buy it and you should read it. If you want to better understand how the gospel unfolds in the whole of Scripture, uh, but my one of my child, I will leave this child nameless. Can't stand the third chapter of the storybook Bible. Um, the entire time, I have two daughters, so I can still be nameless. The entire time of their toddlerhood, when we would read it, their head would go under the pillow, uh, and we refuse to hear it. Uh, that particular chapter in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It is titled The Terrible Lie. And I want you to hear a little bit of the chapter this morning as we get started. It begins this way Adam and Eve lived happily together in their beautiful new home, and everything was perfect for a while until the day when everything went wrong. God had a horrible enemy. His name was Satan. Satan had once been the most beautiful angel. But he didn't want to be just an angel. He wanted to be God. He grew proud and evil and full of hate. And God had to send him out of heaven. And Satan was seething with anger and looking for a way to hurt God. He wanted to stop God's plan. Stop this love story right then and there. So he disguised himself as a snake and waited in the garden. Now, God had given Adam and Eve only one rule. Don't eat the fruit on that tree. Because if you do, you'll think you know everything. You'll stop trusting me. And then death and sadness and tears will come. You see, God knew if they ate the fruit, they would think they didn't need him. And they would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without him. And life without him wouldn't be life at all. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve began to wonder. Suddenly, she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all. And you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. Now, when you and I see or hear about snakes and serpents, the immediate instinct is to run and flee, at least it is for me. But there was something different about this serpent. There was something alluring about him. And in the garden, he planted the seed of doubt. 
and he made the forbidden seem attractive. And even to this day, there is this activity of taking error and dressing it up and convincing us to look at it and say, huh, that actually sounds nice. I think, I think that's going to bless me. That is what's going to make me happy. Ever since the garden, that lie has looked more beautiful than the truth. Adam and Eve bit on the lie. And ever since the garden, there have been lies that dress up like the truth, but only leave you and I in bondage, and we, like Adam and Eve, we bite, only to find out in the end that we've actually been deceived. Ever since the garden, there have been teachers that have peddled dressed-up lies. And these lies, as we've seen so far in this letter that Paul has been writing to Timothy, these lies spread they spread like a disease, ruining relationships amongst God's people and literally threatening to capsize, shipwreck, the faith of many. And so, so far in this letter that Paul is writing to Timothy, this last letter we have of Paul before his life is going to be taken because he is a follower of Christ, this last bit, Paul has not wanted Timothy and he has not wanted the church to be ignorant of this reality, and he's also not wanted Timothy, and he's not wanted the church to be afraid of it either. And this morning in the letter, Paul picks right back up on that same theme. In the first five verses of what we know is chapter three of this letter, Paul is going to remind Timothy and the church that the days that we're in are days of difficulty, and that even in these days, we are going to continue to face devious enemies. Don't be ignorant and don't be afraid. The truth will actually win in the end. Look at what Paul says, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this. Same thing as don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Don't find yourself having been unaware of. Don't be surprised that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Paul pulls zero punches in his letters. And it's not just because of his personality. We've tried to dissect Paul's personality for centuries. It's not just because of his personality, but there's the reality that in Paul's day, parchment and ink, whatever they would use to write these letters, these were valuable commodities, especially for someone in prison. I mean, there was no highlight, cut and paste or delete and restart and new document. No, words mattered. Paul was very clear. This is the last letter we have of him communicating to Timothy and the church. He's not wasting words at all. Don't be surprised. Don't be ignorant. Don't get caught off guard. In these last days, there are going to be times and seasons of difficulty. Now, to rightly understand exactly the context with which Paul is actually speaking here, We've got to make a point of clarity. 
And the point of clarity is this. The Bible draws a clear distinction between the last days that Paul is talking about and the last day that the Bible talks about. You see, the last day is the day of judgment. It's the day to come when Jesus will return, not to die for sinners, but to assume his rightful reign of king and fulfill the promises of his kingdom for all of eternity. On this day, this last day, the dead will rise and we'll all stand before God's judgment seat to give an account of our lives. On that day, that last day, all who had turned from their rebellion and put their faith in God's promise of salvation in Jesus will be welcomed into an eternal life of joy and fellowship with God. On that day, all who had continued in their rebellion loving themselves rather than loving God, rejecting his authority and his salvation. On that day, he will reject them. And they will spend eternity separated from God in eternal torment as a just judgment. Friend, if you're here this morning or you're listening this morning and you have never given that day any real thought, I would beg you this morning to reconsider the plans that you have for the rest of this day. Because there is nothing that you have planned for the rest of this day. Even joining us at four o'clock here, you have nothing planned for the rest of this day that is more important than considering that day to come more important than anything that you have planned this afternoon is you turning from your sin, turning from your rebellion, and turning to Jesus in faith, finding in him forgiveness, finding in him reconciliation, finding in him cleansing, finding in him adoption, all that was lost in the garden. Today is the day of salvation. It is the day for you to be prepared for the last day, the day that is to come. If you have never considered this before, or you would just like to talk more about it, I'll say this. If someone invited you here with them, ask them about it. I'm sure they would love to talk to you more about this. If not, Find myself, find one of our pastors, find someone after the service outside. We would love to talk with you more about this. But the distinction has to be made. There is a difference, like I said, between the last day and what Paul's talking about here, because that's not his concern. He's talking about the last days, plural. The days before the last day. And according to the Bible, these days began when Jesus first came and lived the life that we were created to live and then died the death that we deserve to die for our sins. In fact, the writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 1 that it's in these present last days. 
God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. In fact, you can go and read in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, Peter, in that great sermon, quotes the Old Testament prophet Joel saying, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is what was happening. The last days, plural, began with Jesus' first appearance on the scene. And an important thing for you and I to be aware of as we consider this is that the Bible is never at pains to convince us of the exact number of these last days. The Bible's chief desire is that you and I realize that we are actually living in them. That's what matters. Remember, Matthew 24, we're reminded that no one knows the day of Jesus' return. Peter will remind the church that a day is like a thousand years, metaphorically speaking, to God. We don't know the exact day. What we do know is that we are in the last days, so we must always be mindful of being ready for the last day that is to come. And in these last days, we must be ready for difficult times. Friends, as long as we are in these days, one, there's still time to prepare for the last day to come. But two, we must face the reality that there are going to be times and seasons in these days of tremendous difficulty. When Paul says this here, that there's going to be these difficult times and seasons. He's speaking of the highs and, and the particularly lows that, that may carry on for who knows how long. It's a picture of like a, a storm at sea that throws the waves to and fro and anything that's caught in its path. This is the way the word that we have here for difficulty is translated in common usage in the Greek language. This word for difficult is only used one other time in the entire Bible, in the entire Greek New Testament. It's used in Matthew chapter 8 to describe the two Gadarene demoniacs that met Jesus and his disciples when they got off the boat, where it said these were so fierce, that's the word we have here for difficult, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Friends, the Bible is nothing if it's not honest. There are going to be fierce days for God's people, difficult raging days for God's people. There is no such thing as heaven on earth. But heaven is real, and if you live for it, you won't be disappointed in the end. But the reality of it is, we all too easily get caught up and consumed by this American view of endless progress. Endless progress that's threatened by reality every single day. That can't come to terms with reality. As one writer said, as Americans, we live as if a golden future is our birthright. Listen, the Bible is clear. Paul is clear. There is a better tomorrow coming. But it's not when we colonize Mars. It's not when our cars drive for us. A better tomorrow that is coming is made of a new heavens and a new earth. And it's not achieved and it's not won by politics and technology, but by Christ crucified 
and raised for our justification. One pastor said, God doesn't call us to asceticism. We should be grateful as long as it's called today for all of the good gifts he gives us, and we should be stewards of them. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, have we so closely allied ourselves with the pursuit of American prosperity and fulfillment that we find ourselves unprepared for the difficult times to come? Understand this. Don't be caught off guard. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Why? Well, he explains, starting in verse 2. Here's why. For people will be. Here's why. People, that's why. People will be. And you're about to get one of the longest lists of traits in the entire New Testament. And here's the thing about lists like this. Be they lists of gifts or virtues or vices. You've got to remember that in this day, the way people consumed this information was normally auditory. They would hear it. So these lists aren't meant to be these detailed, comprehensive things that capture everything. Part of the way the lists work is in their size, bringing weight onto people's minds and hearts as they hear it. And there's a level of repetition that's going to happen in this list as it keeps going on and on and on that people would have heard and the weight and the reality would have set in in a little bit of a different way than it does for us. So I'll try to make it clear as we go, but just listen to what he says. Why is it going to be hard? People, that's why. Because people will be lovers of themselves. Listen, if you want to be a writer, a content producer, whenever that looks like, the largest market out there for you today, if you haven't realized it, is to get people to try to love themselves more. Far from thinking we love ourselves too much, we live in a world that thinks we don't love ourselves enough. You want to make some money? Here you go. I wouldn't advise it, but for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. I mean, having the resources to be able to get everything you want that you think you have to have to be happy, it goes hand in hand, right? If you are your own highest good, then you need what it takes to get what it is you think you need. People will be lovers of self and lovers of money. So it shouldn't become a surprise to us that those who love themselves most become proud. Boastful is another way to understand that word. Arrogant. Again, is that surprising at all? Is it a surprise that those who love themselves more than anything and are Proud and arrogant may become abusive. Now, the word there for abusive is a word that's typically used in the Bible and in other language and use of the time to speak of a type of verbal abuse, a way of speaking about and to other people. Abusive, disobedient to their parents. I mean, you wouldn't expect somebody who loves themselves more than anything else to be respectful of authority, do you? Is it a shock, right? Just read it like a human. Now, here's where some of the weight and some of the auditory power of the list would come into play for those who would have originally heard it. Seven of the next traits all start with, in the Greek language, which is very similar to the Latin of the day, a negative A at the front of the word. 
So if you've ever heard of the book that Neil Postman wrote, Amusing Ourselves to Death, or if you've ever read it, you understand what's happening here. To muse is to think longly and deeply on something. That's what you do when you muse on something. Put the A in front of it, amuse, is to negate that. It's the opposite of musing. To be amused is to be emptied of longing and deep thought on something. Seven of the next eight traits all work that way. It's the negation of something good. And they would have heard it in the word over, ah, 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 ah. And the weight would have sat as they heard it. It doesn't translate quite like that in English, but you can catch the drift of it. Ungrateful. The absence of gratitude. Unholy. The absence of godliness or holiness. Heartless. The word that's actually there, the negation, is actually ah-human. Without natural human affection. The best way we can translate that is, is heartless. Unappeasable. Ah-appeasable. Not able to be appeased. Reconciled. Not able to forgive. Lacking the capacity to pass over wrongs. Unappeasable. Slanderous. The word underneath that one is the root for where we get diabolical, devilish, and it sits right in the middle of the list. Without self-control, lacking self-control. Can't control your tongue when you're slanderous. Brutal, untamed, not loving good, treacherous, It's the same word used of Judas. It's the word spoken of with treasonous action or traitors. Like these gospel false peddlers that Paul's been talking about and will keep talking about, who had once been acquainted with the truth but had become traitors to the truth and begun to peddle forgeries and lies. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit far too satisfied with their own opinions. I had a coach who used to, I had a teammate for a number of years, and our coach used to always say about him at every opportunity, he is a legend in his own mind. And we all laughed, but it was kind of like, uh, kind of a backhanded funny one, isn't it? Swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so as the list would have been read, there would have been this drumbeat over and over of the beginning syllable with these words. But there was another repetition at play as well in the list. Did you hear the six different distortions of love? You would have heard it in the auditory form. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, without love, not lovers of the good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Kent Hughes, who used to be the pastor of College Church Wheaton, said that when love of God is replaced with love of self, all sorts of vices inevitably follow. A man swollen with conceit who loves himself more than anything else will never sacrifice himself to serve anyone else. Friends, you are what you love. 
And God wired us to love him with our whole heart and our neighbor as ourself. I love the way John Stott looked at this list. He said, if we flip the order of the list, putting self first and God last, our neighbor in the middle is bound to suffer. And that's exactly what you see in the list. Lovers of self, not lovers of God, and everyone around us suffering in between. I mean, self-love leads us to sacrifice anyone and anything that isn't equally as committed to me as I am to myself. That is why we are willing in different times and circumstances to sacrifice friends and family and relationships on the altar of things like professional ambition. Because if you aren't as committed to me as I am to me, I'm willing to sacrifice you to get what it is I want because I love me more than I love anything else. That's what is being talked about here. The why of the difficult seasons is people. People, in particular, with disordered hearts, disordered loves. People who have fallen prey to the cult of the worship of man. And right there in the middle of the list, Paul says it's diabolical, devilish, swollen with conceit. The very thing the devil did was slander God in the garden. God isn't committed to you. He's not committed to your happiness. You've got to take care of you. God doesn't love me. Friends, the source of the difficult seasons are people. People in particular whose hearts are given to the love of themselves. This is the reality of fallen sinful humanity. Friends, the world in which we live in tells us that the the source of all of the difficult times and the difficult seasons that we endure has something to do with political instability or oppression or resource scarcity or climate change or the loss of family values. And and so we, we set up all kinds of studies and we devote all kinds of resources, financial and personal and time, to trying to correlate economic factors and social environmental factors and come to all these things. And they bring us good information. It's not, it's helpful stuff. But it keeps the deepest reality at arm's length right there. That's what happens. The deepest reality is the fact that the problem is the sinful, arrogant, prideful human heart. Without that, all of these other ills wouldn't exist. But with that, all of those things are completely guaranteed. That's what Paul is saying. So friends, you're your battles for justice, your battles for fiscal stewardship, your battle for moral laws and policies, go after it with all of the endurance that God gives you. But as you do, do not forget that the ultimate battle cannot and will not be won at the level of policy and program. They can help it, keep at it. But the ultimate battlefield is the human heart. And that battle is fought with spiritual weapons. And only the gospel offers the necessary solution. Only the gospel promises a new heart. A new heart with new loves. 
a new heart with the capacity for reorientation. Only the gospel can free a fundamentally self-centered heart and make it a God-centered heart. This is the source of the difficulty. But then Paul says something else in verse 5. It's part of the list, but it begins to move into the specificity of the people he's dealing with. And he says that in this, there, there's this appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And here's the thing. Lest you listen to this list or you listen to me and find yourself, at least in your mind, pointing your finger as you hear the list to some group of people out there, wherever out there is to you. Paul is talking about the presence of such a reality in verses 1 through 5 already in the church. Difficult times and seasons because there are people and leaders in the church whose hearts and loves are utterly disordered. They look good, sound good, but as we saw last week, in the end will be proven to be gospel forgeries. As good as they sound, what it is they peddle lacks the true power of the gospel. And their message will leave you enslaved to your sin, just like it left Adam and Eve enslaved in the garden. And as Paul reminded Timothy in the church already earlier in the letter, the message is going to promise some level of progress, but it's only leading in the direction of ungodliness. So Paul says, avoid such people. You've got to avoid such people. Now here's the thing, Paul just described in a vivid picture the reality of the sinful human heart. Where do you go to avoid that? Paul isn't an idiot. To avoid such people would somehow mean you have to avoid the mirror and you would have to find some kind of remote cave in the desert somewhere. So it can't be what Paul's talking about. The weight behind what he's saying gets to the issue of influence. The influence of people and perspectives that we willingly subject ourselves to and the habits of mind that we willingly immerse ourselves in. Left unguarded, is it any wonder that dishonoring attitudes and dishonoring actions eventually become normalized in our mind and heart? Friends, what good does the church do to the world if we look more and more like verses 1 through 5? The issue is dealing with the influence. That's the easiest way to get after what he's talking about here. And the key distinction between that which we avoid that looks so right and looks so clear, and like the serpent in the garden, it's hard to even discern What's underneath the surface is simply this. Those with a form of godliness ultimately pretend to not be as bad as they really are in order to actually remain as bad as they really are. Genuine 
disciples of Jesus who have tasted and seen that God is indeed good own the reality of how bad they are because they don't want to be that way anymore. They are repentant sinners. They have stopped pretending to not be who they are and daily depend on the grace of God to be who he is calling them to be. There's a distinction here. See, by faith in God's promises, we can see our sin and own it, and yet at the same time turn from it so that we can continue, as long as it's called today, to taste and see that God really is good and to live in his forgiveness and transformation. This is what Paul is getting after. We've got to deal with it. But it's not just difficult days and seasons that come into the life of God's people with this influence. Devious ways are brought in as well. Look at what he says in the next few verses. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and John Brace oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. I'll be completely honest with you this morning. I took a moment this week to thank God that in his providence, this isn't where we landed on Mother's Day. We could have. It would have been a little uncomfortable, but we didn't. But in all seriousness, there, 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 there is a very specific situation that's happening in Ephesus that Paul is addressing, but it's a situation that has a broader impact and application for every person sitting here this morning. And the situation is just this. I'll try to paint it for you. The households that Paul is talking about, in the a language, you go look at it on your computer, it actually says the homes. The homes refer to the larger homes in that time and in that day that were most often used by the church for their gatherings. These homes belong to the wealthier members of the church. They were the ones who were able to have these homes. And in that particular time and day, those who lived at that level of society with that kind of wealth had workers to do for them everything imaginable, which left them to pursue the thing that was chief amongst that strata of culture, leisure. That's what they would do. And Paul is saying that there are a group of women who belong to these homes this strata of society. These homes are being used for the church. And there's a foolishness about them. The weakness Paul is speaking about is a spiritual weakness. He's not talking about women in general. Remember, he started the letter reminding Timothy, thanking God for the impact of his mom and his grandmom who acquainted him from the day he was born with the scriptures and introduced him to the good news of the gospel through Christ and discipled him to the point where he is right now. There is a specific group that Paul is thinking of. And because they're burdened down by sin, their conscience is loaded with guilt. Guilt. 
And because they're in the body, but they have yet to appropriate the truth of the gospel, their conscience remains burdened by guilt, which leaves them ready for any cheap substitute that offers relief. And because they're burdened by guilt and led astray by various passions, that's the same word we looked at just last week, these over-desires. There are these over-desires that are ruling their hearts, shaping the way they live. Very often, it's these over-desires that lead us into actions and behaviors that compound the guilt. So there's this cycle that they're caught in. The very things they pursue bring about the guilt they can't seem to get relieved of, and they're burdened down by it and caught in the ethos of the day, which is no different than today. Always learning but never arriving at the knowledge of truth. The exaltation of doubt and question. It leaves them utterly vulnerable. Hearing the truth of the gospel, never appropriating its grace for their lives and their hearts, unable to come to a settled conviction on the truth and burdened down by guilt. They, in Paul's dealings here in Ephesus, have become a ripe target for cheap and empty gospel substitutes. And there are teachers, corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, who are more than ready to creep in, to worm in, as the King James would say, just the way the serpent did in the garden. You're not so bad. Here's my program for you to follow. You'll love it. You go, girl. You be you. This was the situation specific to Paul's day. But here's the thing. It's a reality that's true of any of us today. Not appropriating the truth of God's grace for our lives today, settling for being burdened down with guilt and sin captivated by the air of the day, unwilling to have any settled conviction, thinking that doubt and question is the highest good, lives driven by over-desires and passions, it could be true of any of us. And we don't need traveling salesmen to hook us with a lie. False teachers have unlimited access to our homes and hearts. At least today, technology allows us to listen to one voice driving to work, stand in line and scroll through Twitter profits at the grocery store, lay in bed before we fall asleep and flip through Facebook. We willingly choose to subject ourselves to Instagram influencers and YouTube stars. Never mind all the talk radio and cable news personalities we follow. Thought leaders and advertising giants spending countless amounts of money to shape the way we see the world. It's an entire ecosystem of false narratives that we voluntarily submit ourselves to. And don't be deceived to think it doesn't have an impact. It shapes us. It molds us. It has an effect on us. It impacts the way we see the world and its events and understand ourselves. Our narrative gets shaped by it. I haven't even mentioned the Christian books that you can go find on Amazon. The Christian radio, the Christian television, the Christian internet. 
Ever since the garden, there have been those who creep into our homes and seek to take captive our hearts. Ever since the garden, there have been smooth operators, just like Jonas and John Brace, Paul says in Moses' day. Those are the traditional names given to the Egyptian magicians. Excuse me, magicians, not musicians, but magicians. I've talked too much today. I'm not done, so pray for me. Um, they matched, if you remember the story in the, in the Egyptian court, they matched Moses miracle for miracle for a while. Everything that God did through Moses to demonstrate his power, Jonathan John Brace and the Egyptian magicians matched it. Up to a point. And Paul says there's going to be teachers. There's going to be influencers. There's going to be people in the church who have a form of godliness. But like Jonas and John Brace, it only goes so far. And this is where Paul gets in verse 9. They will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, just as it was of those two men. You see, despite the opposition that exists and the difficult days that are brought with them, Paul once again is going to turn Timothy and the church and us today, turn our attention to the confidence that is ours. Don't be ignorant and don't be afraid. There will be those who claim a particular kind of knowledge, but in the end, they will be tried and found wanting regarding the truth. They won't get very far. Their gospel forgeries, their gospel counterfeits, they may spread for a while like gangrene, but its spread will be limited, just like the magicians. It will become clear in God's time whose message is true and whose God is real. These teachers making these promises, having a form of godliness but only moving towards ungodliness, they will be proven to be frauds. You know why? Because in the end, in God's time, their message lacks the true power to transform hearts and that will be seen. Christianity alone can do this. What we understand as Christianity with the heart of the gospel as its message, only Christianity exposes us to the reality of who we are apart from God's grace. That's verses one through five. No one else tells you that. But only Christianity provides the necessary message of grace for hearts that look like verses one through five. The news that Jesus bore our sin on the cross. That because of him, our sins can be forgiven. Our guilt removed. Our hearts made new if we would but repent and put our faith in him. Only this message of God's grace that's at the heart of what we call Christianity, only this flips back into right order the disordered hearts that sin has torn asunder. Only the gospel cultivates people who begin to love God and others more than themselves. Only the gospel cultivates people who delight in boasting in Christ alone, who speak truth and grace rather than slander and abuse who are quick 
quicker today than we were yesterday to forgive and overlook offenses rather than choosing to wake up unappeasable, unable to forgive, unable to overlook. Only this message of the gospel cultivates people whose hearts submit with faith and hope to God's good authority. Don't be fooled. In these last days, none of us will do it perfectly. But we really do it. And we really do look more and more like Christ. We are, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, being changed bit by bit into the one whom we behold. We really are becoming what we truly love. Church family, may our hearts be captivated by Jesus. And may our eyes be fixed on the day to come. That day. When by his grace, all that he has promised will become our every day for all of eternity. Let me pray for us as we get ready to respond to God's word this morning. Father, our our world keeps us so unfocused on the ultimate matters. So many minor things seek our attention and our affection. Lord, for those of us who are here, who are listening, who have never considered the day to come, your promised return, the account that we will give before you, the promise of grace that's ours on that day through faith in your son. Let this day be the day that we finally prepare. Lord, help us continually to see how good you are, how faithful you are, how kind you have been and continue to be to us. Lord, capture our hearts this morning with all that is good and beautiful and true, all that finds its foundation in you. Lord, help us to not be such easy prey to deceit. Help us to see you more clearly each day and our hearts to love you more fully each day so that we're less susceptible to the gospel forgeries. Lord, we want to love you with all that we are, to taste and see that you truly are good for the days that you have appointed for us on this earth before your return to be days full of delight in you and usefulness on your mission. For that to be a reality, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to do in us what only you can do. And so we ask this morning for Jesus' good name, for our deep joy that you would do that very thing. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.